right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your one of your hosts, Chris Papa, and we have our other host, Lisa Flicker. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Chris. Good to see you today. Good to see you. And we just spoke with what many consider uh, a New Jersey real estate icon, Mr. Gus Milano, the president and chief operating officer at Hearts Mountain Industries, longtime long time New Jersey and now basically East Coast owner operator developer of real estate. Very clear to see how he's been how's he how he's become so successful. Obviously worked very, very hard and um, really put his heart and soul into building his career. So it was a great person to chat with. Yeah, just straightforward, hardworking, honest. There's no like fluff or anything, you know what I mean? Like, he's a super nice guy, but this is really, like, keeps it very, very... Salt of the earth. Keeps it very, very, like, simple, and uh, you can see why Hearts Mountain has been around for so long and uh, why they entrust him with the company. So, uh, love that. And so, please, everyone, take a listen, and if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends, and as always, review the podcast, rate the podcast, and share the podcast with people put it on linkedin and uh yeah please uh continue to email us with any questions and or recommendations for guests we'd love to hear from you well gus thanks for thanks for joining us on, on the podcast today i uh, really appreciate it you uh you and i met at the uh, montclair state university panel they had for the graduate certificate of real estate development um you were on that panel i'm sure you i mean you do speak on a lot of panels you see i mean you're a legend of the new jersey no, real i'm not estate, a legend so but i'm sure you i've are. been I, i've been on a few but I, I it was unfortunate because i had to run out i was on a very tight schedule that night and i wasn't able to stick around so but then well your presence there drew a lot of people i'm sure um, without a doubt <laughs> So thank you. Uh, and so you, yeah, you are you are the the president and COO of of Hearts Mountain Industries, uh, based out of Secaucus, New Jersey. I mean, uh, firm's been around about a hundred years, correct? Um, I don't think you've been there the entire time, but uh, how? What? What's your role? Can you tell us what's heart? What is? Tell us about Hearts Mountain and what your role is there. Sure, absolutely. So, Hearts Mountain Industries is a real estate investment and development company, and the real estate division actually started in the very late 60s by Leonard Stern. His father, Max Stern, started the Hearts Mountain Corporation, which was the pet products division. Oh, really? Leonard was, yeah. Leonard was actively involved in running that company from his early 20s. And he it was a regional business, and he... Uh, expanded it into an international business and it did very well. In in the late sixties, he started looking for warehouse space and started buying some real estate. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the 1970, he acquired 750 acres in the Meadowlands, which was swamplands mm -hmm. and closed landfills and pig farms <laughs> and this real estate that no one wanted to touch. Uh, so Leonard took a risk and bought that land for at the time, which was a considerable sum of, sum of money. And um, it evolved into one of the larger industrial 
complexes in northern New Jersey, and most of that was built in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and in 2000, Leonard sold a pet products company, and he has other interests, but the primary operating company of the Hart's portfolio is real estate now. Mm. So I started in 1981, and um, I started as an accountant. I got involved in the financing. I took over the leasing. And uh, as time went by, I ultimately became president and chief operating officer of the company. But my background, I started, you know, I grew up in the 60s and didn't have much money. And I had to work my way through college. And I worked on construction and working on buildings. So that came in very help. It was very helpful to me. I was going to Montclair State on nights and weekends and summers and studying accounting. Um, So my career actually evolved. I had a the CFO of Hearts in the early 80s hired, actually hired me. Um, and he w- I had him as an adjunct professor for a tax accounting course. So it's just oh, okay. uh, the, the, the way things evolve, right? I got, I got a little lucky that way. And um, so the company was an industrial-based company. In the 80s, when the office market started to boom, the suburban office market, we had a great opportunity to lure tenants over from New York. We had a tremendous tax and cost savings and arbitrage. It was like shooting fish in the barrel. We built 10 million square feet of office space in a 10 year period. We averaged a million square feet of year. Most of it was leased before the buildings were completed. Um, and most of the projects were speculative. So we had many tenants come over from New York, UBS, American Express, Lord Abbott, Lehman Brothers, Equitable Life, Buck Consulting, Ernst & Young. I mean, all these significant credit yeah. institutional type companies taking hundreds of thousands of square feet. UBS took a million square feet. Panasonic took 1.4 million square feet. Uh, so that was, we had quite a run in the 80s building office buildings. And then the 90s came the complexion of real estate change. Uh, the office market was certainly stressed at that time. Capital dried up. Uh, so there was a qu- very quiet period from 90 through 93, 94, 95. But that was cyclical. And it, at that time, people still came to the office. It was really just a real estate recession. Everybody expected employees that come back, work five days a week. There was no such thing as off Monday, off Fridays. So the, the office market still had a lot of room to run in a, more, in a stabilized economy. So by 1998, 1999, we started building offices again. We built a few projects down in Jersey City. They were, they were very successful. Um, but then after, I would say 2003, 2004, we recognized that the suburban office buildings uh, there was sustained vacancy levels of 15 to 20% in northern New Jersey. Developers were stealing other tenants. It wasn't organically growing any longer. Right? Someone built a better mousetrap, take your tenant. But the, the market, the, we were having negative absorption. Mm. Companies were becoming more efficient with their utilization of space. So we made the decision that we wanted to readjust our portfolio and start selling office buildings. And that started in 2004. So we had 10 million square feet, I don't know, 25 buildings or so, 20 buildings starting in 2004. And we pretty much had a building for sale continuously 
through 2018, 2019. Uh, so we were fortunate that we pretty much, um, pretty much exited the office market yeah. prior to the yeah. pandemic. It's amazing timing. Right. So amazing. So we got lucky. We got we got lucky. We, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about remote working. It wasn't about the pandemic. It was just there was no longer organic growth. Developers are stealing tenants. Real effective rents were going down. I was committing a lot of capital to reposition the buildings, TI for tenants, architects, engineers, and we're churning, looking at these buildings, 30% vacant. You can't make money with 30% vacant office building. So we said, you know what, let's get into different asset classes. So what we did, we started building our multifamily portfolio and continued to build our industrial portfolio. And we also began to diversify geographically. So we were pretty much Jersey-centric. We had a little bit New York, New York City, North New Jersey. And in 2010, we bought our first property up in New Rochelle. And then we went to Chicago and Seattle and went down to Austin and um, now we're in Florida, Atlanta, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Maryland. So, so pretty much on the East Coast. Um, and um, so we continue to build. We build multifamily, we build industrial buildings. We made the decision to focus on multifamily within our own market nearby uh, and Industrial will continue to acquire and expand pretty much up and down the East Coast. So that's our strategy now, pretty much from West Palm through northern New Jersey is our footprint for industrial. And our multifamily will focus on New Jersey primarily. So we have several, we have three multifamily projects under development now. We're starting, we have um, a large warehouse under development in Teterboro. We're starting two more in Cranford, New Jersey. So um, that's pretty much where we are today. What's so interesting to me is you very rarely see people staying for their entire career at one platform like you did. And starting out in accounting and kind of working your way up, and obviously I'm sure there was a lot of grit that went into getting you to where you are, how was it when you got to a senior level role to kind of shift gears and now you're like the senior level person? It's not about you actually like doing all of the doing every day, but you know, there's a, like the expression, what got you here won't get you there. How did you find it after all these years of kind of being the junior person on the team to rise up and now you're, you're running the company? Well, you know, it's, it's pretty seamless and we're a private company, privately held only controlled by Leonard Stern. His son, Eddie Stern, is also involved. Uh, it's really a family-type business. And it's very, we're very, we operate in a very flat management style. So even when I was junior, I had a lot of input. I had a lot of discretion. Um, and I still defer to m most of my teammates in making decisions. I very seldomly, I probably never make a decision to myself. I always mm. take input. Um from, from my staff. Uh, my staff has been with me for a long time. My general counsel has been here for 35 years. My my CFO has been here for 30 years. Uh, my, my, the fellow who runs my construction and design architecture has been here for 30 years. So we've all been working together. We work as a team. 
and sometimes I forget who's in charge, right? Because I don't independently make decisions that way. And um, yeah, I think because we're a private company and we don't have we have very li uh, few outside partners. I don't have institutional debt. I don't have out, um, I don't have quarterly conference calls. I don't need to report publicly. It makes life very, very easy. We can make decisions. We have a committee. We don't have formal meetings. We make decisions in the hallway, and uh, and that's how we operate. When we make a decision, a, 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 a major capital event, we can make that decision in minutes. So it gives us a lot of flexibility, and. Um, I, mean, I really don't, I still don't perceive myself to, to be a boss because it's the same company, same group, and uh, mm -hmm. just work as a team. How did, I, how did you, uh, so you, what were, you were doing construction and, and accounting? Like, how did, no, was it, was because it I, you know, I was, I was, I didn't have, I, I used to go to school at night and work during the day. I didn't, I didn't have student loans. I didn't think of a student loan. Mm -hmm. And, how to pay my way through school. My family didn't pay for my education. So I wanted to do something and I needed to make money yeah. and <laughs> how to pay my bills. And that's how I did it. And so, um, it wasn't unusual for, for my, many of my peers to take a couple of years to get through college. We didn't do necessarily do it in four years. We did it as we could afford it. And it was a little choppy, but that's how it was in the late sixties and early seventies. Um, Lisa's a recovering accountant too. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And I had the same path. I went to school at night. I worked my way through school, but I think we're a dying breed. There aren't that many people who, who don't want the student loans and the, and the four years of rah-rah. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. 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 It's a little, just a different world. It's a little different outlook, right? I mean, I came from my parents, my grandparents immigrated in the early 1900s from Italy and they didn't have very much. And that's how we, you know, we didn't th think about borrowing money to do things. We, you know, earned our money and paid our bills. You know, we, we didn't take car loans and student loans and um, just different different mentality at the time. But uh, it's a different, it was also a different world and circumstances were different. You can't really, you really can't do that today. Um, right. You know, I was, I hitchhiked to Florida with $5 when I was 18. <laughs> I don't think you can make it there. I, when I got there, I had two. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's amazing and a lot of stories yeah. two dollars and yeah. a lot of stories <laughs> did you you think having an accounting background is is a good entree into like help helpful in real estate investment well absolutely investing? i mean have, I, I think an accounting background and a finance background are critical if you want to really succeed in in, in real estate development I, I mean they're really very helpful i mean to have a construction background a finance background i mean they're it's fundamental to this, to this business. And, you know, I, I have, um, you know, some of my junior staff, um, some are more mechanically inclined than others. And it's a big difference when you know how buildings built and how mechanical systems work and, and how they capitalize a project. And I mean, yeah. it's all, it all comes together. So. And that's what I love about the Montclair State program that they're doing is, you know, kind of getting people in that vein who understand how the buildings are built and teaching them and training them up. And so uh, I'm sure they'll they'll hit you up for an apprenticeship for those folks at some point. Yeah, well, we do that. I mean, I certainly we certainly do that. And so I make it a point of having my junior staff um, 
go out to my construction projects weekly and tour with our construction supervisors and explain what's going on, you know, once a week in the development process, just so they can get a yeah. good understanding of it. And then, yeah, what, what would you, if somebody was looking in college right now or whatever, like looking to be, become a real estate developer or somebody's earlier in the career, like what would you suggest to them to do or, or to learn um, in order to help them? I don't know, I have a bias to it, but I think finance, accounting and finance is, is where you where you need to start. And hopefully you can get an internship with a real estate developer and see how buildings are built. And I mean, the other part of it is, you know, focus on the regulatory process because that is becoming extremely challenging. You know, in, in 1980, we could buy a piece of land and physically be under construction in six months. Now you're lucky if it's three years. Wow. And that's an as of right project. So um, that's another whole different skill set. I mean, you, you do have to rely on third party um, expediters and law firms and engineers, and given, you know, depending on what community you're in or what state you're in. But you really have to have a sense of how that works. And that's another component of the, of the process that takes a lot of energy. In fact, you know, 20 years ago, I spent almost no time on the regulatory process. I have a land use attorney and your engineer, and they'd go to a site, pl a hearing, and planning board, site plan, whatever, and they'd come back with a permit and you start building. But now it's not that way. It's, I mean, between the DEP regulations and environmental and social justice, and everybody's trying to figure out how to stop your project. I mean, it, that's just the way it is now. It's, Nobody's trying to help you. 30 years ago, you could sit down with the regulatory authority and they would give you advice on how to get there, how to get mm. it done. Now, now all they do is put roadblocks up. I mean, I mean, just the way it is. And that's across the board. There's no one trying to accelerate your process. And you know, we have a lot of contractors and third parties uh, waiting on the sideline for a project to start. And I mean, I, I bought a site as of right. It took me 18 months to get a zoning certificate in New Jersey. As of right, without a variance. And here I have contractors saying, I'm going to start in six months. Well, no, next month, next month, next month. And the jobs are not being created. It's really, it, that's, it's really a big issue in real estate development. Mm. Um, certainly, it makes the existing product more valuable. But if you're trying to develop, you really, um, it's very, very challenging. At least in, 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 most, in New Jersey, but I'm sure uh, out in California, it's not much. You expanded into other markets. Uh, like how, how hard was that getting into other markets? I mean, it's like playing in a different. So all fields, all our expansion was acquisitions of completed real estate assets. And what we try to do on the industrial side is buy a portfolio of properties that give us some level of size and scale to have some relevance in the market. So we got, we went down to Atlanta. We bought our first acquisition was I think 29 buildings and we expanded. Now we're probably 75 buildings in Atlanta at this point. Um, and then we could, you know, with, with some scale, you get the brokerage community to know who you are and recognize you and the deal, all your, all your deal flow comes through the brokerage community. You have to have a good relationship with them. You have to be relevant and you have to treat them well or else you're not going to get too much done. So um, it really it really wasn't that challenging. You have to just 
wait for the right opportunities for the right portfolio of properties to come available. Hopefully you can, you know, win a, win a bidding process and um, we, we managed to do it. So. That's awesome. And how about like, I know you said you're not, you don't consider yourself a boss and there's a lot of people that, um, you, you currently work with that have been working with you for 30 years or so, but I mean, how, what sort of culture do you like to build? Have you built at, at, at hearts and like when you have younger folks, how do you sort of mentor them throughout their careers and helping them grow in their careers? Right. So, you know, a lot of our staff now is getting, is pretty senior and we're bringing in, you know, an, another level of, um, management. And, you know, so I think pretty, most of our departments are pretty well covered with much younger staff and that we, we work with closely. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, my office door is always open. I'm always accessible. And, you know, my legal department, my construction department, property management department, we have you know, more junior staff now that work very closely with the senior staff. And, um, you know, I, I know everybody in this company by name. Um, they come to my office. My door is always open. So I, we, we try to give them the opportunity to understand how we operate and how we think. Um, you know, we, I don't know if there's another real estate company that operates that way we operate. I mean, we're very, very granular, right? We're, we're large in size, but we do things on a very granular basis. We don't like billion dollar deals and million square foot buildings, right? I, I do have some, but you know, I like to do things in, in, in a manner so that if there is a problem, it doesn't move the needle. Right? Mm. So if a deal goes bad, we don't see it. We don't feel it. Right? So um, we've turned down a lot of business over the years because of our girth and our size and our footprint, everybody approaches us for, you can't, you know, you can imagine what we get approached with. So we try to maintain very disciplined. We try to maintain a very low leverage uh, in our, on our balance sheet. You know, we'd rather forego a deal and have less debt on our portfolio wide basis than, than, um, you know, financing ourselves to a level that we are not able to meet the obligations if they become due. I mean, we always, want to be in a position where if there's no capital available that we can fund our own fund the mortgages that mature and um, get through those rough times. We've you know, experienced very challenging times in 1990. So we have a lot of experience. So we don't want to do that again. So we we don't we structure the company so that if there is a problem that we can work our way through it. And that's exactly where we, where we are today. I'm not worrying about mortgage maturities. Uh, we didn't expand as fast as we could have because capital was available because we wanted to conserve our capital to be in a position to satisfy whatever obligation that may arise. Um, so you have to have discipline. You have to be patient. And these are the type of, these are the values that we try to instill upon new management coming in. We don't want them to come in to say, gee whiz, I got this ginormous company here with all this capital. We can go out and buy the world, right? So right. you have to have a lot of discipline, a lot of focus. And, you know, it's a you know, real estate development is a long, a long, long road. And um, if you tr try to do things quickly and too much leverage, you're going to get caught. I mean, it's a, it's, a game, it's a game of musical chairs. And if you're not disciplined, you, it's not when, but you, but, you know, it's not if, but when you'll get caught. And you, you've seen it. I mean, you, you understand the real estate market. You've seen a lot of guys put to get bunched up quite, you know, quite a bit. And um, that's one thing that 
I don't want to ex ever experience again. <laughs> yeah, you often see like somebody coming in, like a younger person, like, hey, we're going to start, you know, partnering and doing all this stuff and over leveraging. Right. That's exactly that's exactly right. That's so. And that's what I mean, that's the first question people ask. We can partner. We can borrow this. We can get a MES loan. You know, we can buy three of these buildings now. And uh, and um, that's just, just not how we how we operate. Right. So. Um, we're a little different than than most developers, I think. I mean, we're not out looking for the institutional type of deals. I'm not, you know, most guys are out there building million square foot buildings for Amazon, or or they were building for Amazon, not today. Uh, that's not happening so quickly. But um, we're not. I, I'm not one to go out and build a million square foot building on a spec basis and then sell it in three to five years. So most of our portfolio we build to own. I mean, we sold. We got out of the office. Uh, the office market, but the industrial market, we were building and owning. We sell strategically. I mean, we have maybe 250 industrial buildings. So there's always a building or two that we may not want. So occasionally we'll sell an asset. Uh, but generally speaking, most of our portfolio is, is to continue to own generationally for the Stern family. Sorry, I cut you off on that last before there, Lisa. You something you want to add? No, I was going to say. Well, I'm, you know, it's it's interesting because that is the the foundation of the company is the the build to own, and I think a lot of people are finding that right now that is that is a differentiator to be able to say we're not relying on anybody else's capital. We can make our own decisions and we can kind of keep them here. Um, I'm 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 wondering how over time the business will change, if at all, given that like there are just so few disciplined investors out there. And so, you know, I, how do you keep your team motivated without, you know, without trading and doing kind of all the things that I think the young folks are just he makes like, him, he makes them go through yeah. a wrestling practice. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, it, 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 you know, you have to fit here. You're not, you know, you just have to fit into this philosophy and, you know, you have to be disciplined and there are going to sometimes we're very busy, but, buying and selling other times we're not right now you know the, the the price uncertainty in the market you know you're dealing with effectively six percent cost of capital right so are, are you going to go out and buy a deal at a six percent cap rate i mean i think maybe you'd rather pay off your mortgage right now wait for the world to stabilize get some clarity on where pricing is going so you have to have that this you need that you need that discipline every couple of years in this business or else that's when you make a mistake you can't keep trading when the market doesn't provide for that, right? I mean, right now we don't know where cap rates are. Right? I, we look, we, we're bidding on assets, um, but we we are not certain where cap rates are today. I mean, a broker will say, "Well, we're selling this building, we're guiding to a five cap," but I don't know when it ends up. I don't know if it ends up at a five cap. You got to buy a hundred basis points of negative leverage, not knowing for certain where cap the cost of capital is going to be. Oh, well, the Fed will be done Wednesday. Maybe, maybe not. Will long-term rates then go down? Maybe, maybe not. So you can buy a five in a six percent debt market, and rates could long-term rates could be seven percent next year. So when you buy now, you're two hundred basis points negative leverage. So I really don't know how you make a judgment to buy an asset today. I mean, I'm very, I'm, I'm looking. The right opportunity comes up, I'll buy it. I still have like the broker still send me OMs. My team still reviewing them. We're always looking at things. I'm still putting some bids out, but you have to be very careful. I mean, 
uh, because just too, too much uncertainty. And, and there's always the potential of a recession, right? The prospect of that has decreased, hasn't gone away, could have a recession, could have continuing escalation of debt, cost of capital. It's, right now is a very, very challenging time. But to keep your staff motivated, they have to recognize that these conditions may exist and you have to sit down and go through it. It's time to go play golf, right? I mean, that's not that I play golf, but. <laughs> you know, but so what do you do when you're not trans, not you? Like what, is, what do, I mean, what would a disciplined real estate firm do when they're not transacting? Well, so we have a you know, portfolio of approaching 40 million square feet. So, and we're pretty, pretty well leased, but there's always, opportunities to there's always opportunities to improve your portfolio uh focus on some vacant space and we'll and plus we always have we're always building too i'm always i'm continuing to build right now so my construction department my land use department my architects are still busy my property management is always busy so i have the transactional guys may not have as much to do you know maybe have a half a dozen guys that aren't as active as they'd like um, but that's just part of the business. I mean, it's just, um, nothing, nothing you can do about it. Right. It's interesting to watch all the acquisitions folks who've kind of basically turned into asset managers just to sit it out. Right. Well, yeah, you have to earn a living, correct? And a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these, you know, if you look at, you know, the, the, the law firms, the uh, engineering firms, the title insurance companies, I mean, these guys are, you know, their book of business has really fallen off. I mean, the transactions aren't happening. And particularly in the office market, right? They were, that's where you get a billion, a billion dollar deals. And, you know, every couple of years a guy would sell it, cap rate comp compression, lower debt costs, get a tenant, all these reasons why you flip a building in a few years and they're billion dollar deals. And the lawyer, the lawyers, the brokers, I mean, it's all food chain that was existing off of that. And that now has really come to a stop. I mean, well, the mortgages on office buildings are just being extended and there's not a lot of fees associated with an extension. Mortgages right. don't want to take the properties. They don't know what to do with it. And the developer doesn't want to lose it and have a recapture tax problem. So that's, well, like we've kind of stuck in the mud there a bit, right? So, um, yeah, it's not- well, the good news is, I think, for you and your team, when you behind closed doors, you probably do a lot of high fiving when you think about the timing of getting rid of your office portfolio. <laughs> yeah, Who knows? Maybe we, you'll buy it back. Yeah, we had, you know, we were in retail. I mean, we had a few shopping centers and and um, we got out of retail because I didn't like what was going on with the leases. I mean, we back in, you know, 2010, 2011, all of a sudden, instead of getting the corporate tenant that gives you store one uh, XYZ and they give you a good guy guarantee. They're not guaranteeing a lease and they want TI and they want their rent abatement and they want the landlord's work. And then you're looking at your effective rents. So my effective rent from $27 went down to $20, $22. So they were going backwards. The quality of the leases were less. They'd have termination, right? Co-tenancies, -term, co termination, right? And so I said, you know, enough of this retail business and we sold our shopping centers and that was before the pandemic and you know probably the last uh, sh shopping center we sold was 2016 or 17. so i was very delighted 
to get out of that. So right. the only retail I have now are ground leases. When we have, when we have you know, the Sam's, the Home Depot's, the Walmart's, restaurant ground leases, uh, but um, no brick, no bricks, no sticks. Yeah. No. So. Yeah. So far, it feels like Gus Milano one generative AI zero. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Gus, no, uh, we got, got a little bit lucky, right? I mean, you know, better to be lucky right, than we got lucky because you know we didn't we sold retail not because of Amazon and and we sold our office not because of remote working. And yeah. So we just. But you were watching. I mean, you had metrics that you were watching that maybe other people weren't that you know were indicators. So. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of luck maybe, but also you're like you said you you've been focused on the granular level of things that maybe some people just kind of overlook. And, right. and, and what we like, I mean, if, if you look at what the real value of real estate is, it's land. Right? So if you have large assemblages of land in well-located areas, I mean, that value, I mean, it vacillates, but it stays forever. And, you know, you when you want to build an office building, you can buy an acre and build 500,000 square feet. You want to buy a multifamily building, you can, on an acre, you can build 500 units. But an industrial building, it's real, you need at least two, Eight, two, two square feet of land for every square foot of building. Mm. I mean, the multi-story stuff is really not for the broader market. It works in very select locations, maybe Tokyo, maybe London, maybe an outer borough. But generally, it's it's really three square feet of land for one square foot of industrial lands. And when you can't make it anymore and you can't get approvals and the regulatory environment is such where you're not producing anymore, the long-term value is really in your land holdings. Mm. Well, Gus, we've made it to the portion of the podcast we call The Hot Seat. Are you ready? I'll try. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services, which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So. They outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. <laughs> do you have a, uh, I don't know if you're a podcast listener, but do you have a book or podcast recommendation for the audience? For your reader? Um, the, the book that I would recommend is, was written in 1853, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And I, I think you need to read the, if you're in this business, you need to read the first hundred pages of that book. Um, so that's my, that's my recommendation. Can you say the title one more time? That's, uh, I never Extraordinary heard of Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Interesting. Okay. It was written in 1853. Well, that is a testament to the more things change, the more they stay the same, yeah. right? And I, I will be very interested to read it. Yeah. 
So tell us a little bit about your most memorable deal. Oh boy. Uh, God, the most memorable deal. I, I, boy, it's a tough one. I mean, um, I, you know, we've had, uh, we had very good success in, in, uh, acquiring a track of land from Colgate in Jersey city. And, uh, that, that acquisition came along with additional options and right of first refusals for other parcels. And it was that as the office market started to boom coming out of the late nineties. So we managed to construct a few off to a couple office buildings, lease them, exercise some rights of first refusal, exercise options on some additional land. And long story short, it was, you know, uh, it was phenomenally successful. So I think if, if I would look back, I would say that would be, the most memorable deal that we've been involved in. So you, you, we kind of went over this, but um, like, how do you, can you mention what you look for in like a, some, when you're hiring someone, but how do you kind of just, how do you vet that out from a person? Like, how do you vet all the characteristics that you're looking for out when you, when you meet someone? Is there a certain like question well, you ask them? Or? You know, it's, it's, um, listen, we've had most, of our hirees have been worked out very well, but we've had certain situations where it hasn't worked out and you don't really know, um, until they, they've been here for some time truthfully. And, um, fortunately it's only been a few instances where we've had issues, but generally speaking, you know, you interview a few times and understand their background and, what the way they think and you know we all have a pretty good feel for people and but i think attitude is the most important aspect of an employee i mean if you, if you don't have a I mean, you, if you don't have a positive attitude and if you can't work with people and support your team you know subordinates or senior staff and just be helpful and cooperative and get along with everyone you're not going to work it's not going to work out i mean that's that's what i look for and 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 it's, it's more important when I look at somebody, I look at how they treat the janitor or the concierge, not how they respect, not how they, they interact with me, but how they treat, you know, the staff, the, 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 the uh, porters, the concierge, right? If they, if, if they, if they you don't have that respect and if they don't interact appropriately with more subordinate people, it's not going to work out, right? So it's really, you know, attitude is everything. And right. you could take that an, an average person can, can can do almost any job if they're trained and they have the right attitude. I've I think see, I've seen people very qualified with the wrong attitude not succeed because they just don't know how to interact with their teammates and fellow staff. So that's what I think is the most important aspect of it. I mean, we have this. I, I came out of a I came out of a state college, and um, some of my staff has come out of other state colleges and, and um, we work very well together and very, we work very hard. I mean, we all, we run numbers, we run spreadsheets and we have concepts and we put it together. And um, it's, I think, again, the most valuable uh, trait is someone's attitude. You can't, yeah. It costs you nothing, right? To it have a good- It costs you nothing, right? right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. 
So I'm going to throw Chris off because I'm going to tweak the last question uh -oh. a little bit. But I'm wondering, um, in your career, you must have had some pretty significant mentors. And I'm wondering if there if there are any mentors that you could speak to who you think really made the biggest impact on your career. So there, are, I've come across a lot of uh, people in my career, maybe a dozen, that have been very helpful. And some that work directly at heart. Some of them are, you know, mortgage brokers or finance guys from New York City, um, and some lease, uh, some developers and. Uh, brokers who were much more senior to me when I was growing up are very helpful to me. But when I started at Hearts, I, I worked nine years for a fellow named Steve Cowan, who was an engineer by background, an MBA. And he was really a bright, bright guy. Steve, I mean, I, I worked for him for nine years. And I think most of what I know is was derived from working with Steve. I mean, he was, he's 10 years older than I am. And, uh, you know, I worked seven days a week. I mean, I worked 14 hours a day, Saturday and Sunday, back in the 80s. We were a smaller shop and, you know, we had to do all the tax analysis and all the financial analysis and we had to do the construction budgets and we had multiple projects and there were complex projects uh, with partnerships and ground leases and industrial development bonds and a small shop. So we were working, you know, seven days a week at, you know, back in the eighties, but he was a really smart guy, tough guy, challenging. And, uh, but I, I think if I had to pick one person, it would be Steve. Good answer. I love that. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Gus. It was great getting to know you better. Thanks for coming on the podcast, dude. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I wish you all the best.